Hello, you're listening to a Zen Study Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. From eloquent silence, the teachings of Nyogen Senzaki. Introducing Soen Nakagawa. Nyogen Senzaki said, <clears throat> the summer breeze from the south has brought two wandering monks to San Francisco. Before I begin my lecture on the sutta, I want to introduce to you my brother monk, Soen Nakagawa. He arrived here from Japan on April 8th on the steamship General Gordon and ever since has been living a Zen life with students at our Los Angeles Zendo. We two monks have been corresponding for 15 years without seeing each other. We met for the first time face to face on Pier 42 in San Francisco. <laughs> Soen Nakagawa Roshi said, Soen Shaku, the teacher of our Senzaki-san, came to America in 1905 and at that time stayed about nine months in this city. One day, he was asked to give a talk for a Japanese gathering. The audience had heard of his reputation and expected a profound lecture to be delivered. He began as follows. <clears throat> I have studied Buddhism for more than 40 years and have preached the teaching here and there. But I really could not understand it until very recently. Now I understand that after all, I do not understand anything. Most of the audience was disappointed. Some people even laughed loudly. Nongaku, a well-known Chinese Zen master and scholar, went to visit the sixth patriarch, Eno Daikan Zenji, Chinese, Wenang. The sixth patriarch asked him, Who is it that confronts me? In other words, Who are you? Or, Who am I? 
Nangaku was dumbfounded and could not answer. Nowadays, there is no one who can be dumbfounded like Nangaku. Everyone knows everything and can answer every question. Wolfgang von Goethe, whose 200th anniversary is this year, said in his Faust, I have, alas, philosophy, medicine, jurisprudence too, and to my cost, theology, with ardent labor, studied through. Here I stand with all my lore. Poor fool, no wiser than before. Magister, doctor styled indeed, already these ten years I lead up, down, Cross and to and fro, my pupils by the nose, and learn that we in truth can nothing know. So today we are commemorating my Dharma grandfather. Soen Nakagawa Roshi. I am wearing his kesa, which was given to me by Edo Roshi. And <coughs> I am facing the Amida Buddha. Soen Roshi brought to New York Zendo from the altar at Utakaji. Soen Roshi was ordained at Kodakuji which was founded by the famous Basui Tokusho, whose Dharma teachings were so influential for Takusui Zenji, of whom such an inspiring Teisho was given yesterday by Kobayashi Roshi. As a monk, <clears throat> Soen Roshi did many, many solitary retreats on Daibasatsu Mountain, facing Mount Fuji, writing haiku, 
And in 1934, his haiku were published in a women's magazine. And there was a disciple of Yogen Senzaki named Shubin Tanahashi. Some of you know the mysterious story about how they met, about her son Jimmy Tanahashi. And if you don't, there is a very good introduction to Endless Bow written by the introduction was written by Edo Oshi and you can read about that. It's very important to our being here that Shubin Tanahashi found those poems in that magazine and show them to her teacher, Nyogen Senzaki. And he was so moved by them. He felt a kindred spirit had written them. And he wrote to the haiku poet, Soen Nakagawa. And I wanted to read to you two poems that he very well may have read in the collection in that magazine. And this, these two haiku are preceded by journal entries from the young monk Soen's uh, diary. This one is from March 10th 1931. <clears throat> A young wanderer who is exhausting himself on the great matter of birth and death visits Meibaku Hut, where I have secluded myself on the night of the full moon, March 10th. Although he and I have never met before, we immediately feel a strong bond, and we talk all night. <clears throat> I will read the haiku first in my very incompetent Japanese, and then in English. <coughs> Shōen no mata musuba rete tsuki akaki. Extraordinary link. We find each other again. Bright moon. Perhaps this has happened to one of you. This feeling of, oh, I have found you again. In this life, never have met, but a 
extraordinary link. <clears throat> the next day, March 11th, as I told you, Soren Roshi passed away March 11th, 1984. This is from that same early year, 1931. The next morning, the sky and the ground are thick with snow. Our hearts leaping ahead of us, my new friend and I leave on a walking pilgrimage toward Tokyo through Daibosatsu Pass. All beings are soundless and the contours of the mountain ridges vanish into heaven's eternal breath. At the pass, deep with snow and illuminated by the moon, my friend experiences Kensho, liberation of seeing into his true nature, we yell back and forth to each other, holding hands and tumbling in the snow like madmen. And the haiku. Arigata ya namida ni tokasu yama no yuki. Gratitude. Tears melting into mountain snow. And so he, Yogan Senzaki, wrote to this monk Soen in 1935. It was the same year that Soen became a disciple of Yamamoto Gold Genpo at Utapuji. And his correspondence with Yogen Senzaki continued. And they tried to meet, but before and during World War II, of course, it could not happen. Both were brilliant, both loved literature and read widely Chinese classics, Western masterworks, both loved tea, and both felt that Zen in Japan had grown somewhat stale, stultified. And they thought, it needs some strong refreshment. I will read you from uh, Soen Roshi from January 1967, jumping ahead a little bit. 
Buddha Dharma has perished in India. Zen has declined in China. It has maintained its life vein in just a few scattered areas of East Asia. Now it is crossing the Pacific Ocean, moving eastward to the United States and going westward to Europe and Africa and is about to blossom. This year is the 200th anniversary of Zen Master Hakuin's death and follows the 1100th anniversary of Rinzai's. Bodhidharma says, one flower opens five petals. Thinking of how the true Dharma prevails on the five continents, <coughs> I am overcome with tears and bow. In haiku, Tachi kaeri, Tachi kaeri, Tsutsu soushi no haru. Returning and returning, ancestral teachers spring. So the meeting of, of these two really amazing Zen men, I wanted to read something from Edo Roshi's introduction. <clears throat> he wrote, a popular saying often used by calligraphers for scrolls displayed in the tea ceremony alcove is Ichigo Ichie, which means one time, one meeting, or an unprecedented, unrepeatable encounter. The significance and perhaps the most important and lasting effect of Soen Roshi's poetry and calligraphy may have less to do with the world of aesthetics than it does with the transmission of the Dharma to America through his encounter with Nyogen Senzaki. In 1949, Monk Soen was finally able to arrange the meeting. His first time meeting was truly an unprecedented and unrepeatable manifestation of a rare and beautiful friendship. And that trip 
that Sohan Roshi took in 1949. Think of it, 70 years ago. That was the first of what would be 13 trips to the United States. And that special friendship continues and continues far beyond the grave. On his way here, he wrote a poem while traveling on the General Gordon. It's called Arriving at the Other Shore. The great round mirror of the boundless ocean has disappeared in the dark blue night. This boat is now speeding toward the east at 21 knots per hour at a north latitude of 130 degrees bound for a country of science for a country of atomic bombs. Remember, 1949. Hmm? Not so long after Nagasaki-Hiroshima. And he continues, the General Gordon is a huge white dragon chewing its way through the cresting waves of eternal eons samsara and shooting heaven shooting seven huge rainbows across the dome of the sky <clears throat> Assembled on the deck are a Jewish painter, a Canadian journalist, a Polish missionary, and a Japanese physicist. All share a bowl of tea served by this wandering monk. <clears throat> do you or do you not know Hidden in this bowl of tea is a secret more secret than all of atomic science. All things are born of interrelated conditions. Therefore, not a thing has a separate identity. Because there is no separate identity, this one bowl can contain even more than the Pacific Ocean. Not coming, not going, not attaining, thus in the end, empty. In this way, even if I thoroughly penetrate 
into the emptiness of the three billion great worlds, still there is more emptiness to fathom. And tomorrow morning, I will arrive at the other shore, San Francisco. of the Pacific Ocean entered <laughs> some time ago and it doesn't want to leave. So. <clears throat> so there they were at the Theosophical Society in San Francisco in 1949 and Yogin Senzaki in his introduction speaks of two wandering monks at last being together. Son Roshi arrived from Japan on April 8th, Buddha's birthday. And ever since has been living a Zen life with students at our Los Angeles Zendo. So they spent a good deal of time together that first visit, some six months, and spent that time sitting together with the few disciples of Yogin Senzaki, including Shugen Tanahashi, in his very small apartment Zendo. Then Son Roshi says in beginning his talk, Son Shaku, the teacher of our Senzaki-san, came to America in 1905 and at that time stayed about nine months in this city. And most of you know that his first visit to America, the great Shaku, abbot of Engakuji in Kamakura, <clears throat> had come to speak at the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893. So he was the first Zen priest to step foot on these shores. And evidently, there was a very impressed person in the audience named Ida Russell. She became the first Zen student in America. Ida Russell. We should put her in our lineage chanting. <laughs> I already snuck one woman in. Maybe <laughs> you noticed. Mugai Nyodai Zen Ni Dai Osho. 
And who is translating for Soen Shaka at the World Parliament of Religions and at various venues because they traveled after that? Exactly, D.T. Suzuki, Daisetsu Suzuki, who was about 25 years old, brilliant scholar, came with him in 1893. And after Ida Russell invited Son back in 1905 to stay with her and her husband, along with Son came. D.T. Suzuki again, and just shortly afterward, Yogen Sanzaki. So there you have our history happening on the other shore in San Francisco. The two come together, Yogen Sanzaki and Sonakagaroshi. <clears throat> As you know, both Ichi Suzuki and Yogen Senzaki were disciples of Soen Shaku at Engakuji. One was a great lay scholar, the other a very not so well-known monk. Dr. Suzuki became world-renowned, traveled everywhere, and his work the scholarly work is the reason Zen Studies Society was established to support him in his great efforts to bring Buddha Dharma to the West. Yogin Senzaki stayed, but was very inconspicuous, lived, worked, very difficult times for him and eventually had a few students gathering with him. So in this quote from his lecture in 1949, Soen Shaku said at this talk for a gathering of Japanese audience, I have studied Buddhism for more than 40 years. Who here has been studying Buddhism for more than 40 years? A few, yes? Mm. I have studied for more than 40 years and have preached the teaching here and there. But I really could not understand it until very recently. <coughs> now I understand that after all, I do not understand anything. Wonderful. I do not understand anything. I do not have anything. I have nothing to teach. And then Soen Roshi quoted Nangaku. What did he say when he was asked by the sixth patriarch, who is it that confronts me? 
are you? He couldn't speak. He was dumbfounded. And sometimes we think, oh, I couldn't say anything. I couldn't answer what I was asked. We feel terrible. We go to dog slammers. What is this? Basui is famous expression. Korenanzo. <gasps> Dumbfounded. But after studying Buddhism for 40 years, now I understand that after all, I do not understand anything. To be dumbfounded, to be completely clueless. Congratulations. <laughs> Who is it? Who are you? Who am I? So she says, nowadays there is no one who can be dumbfounded like Nangaku. Everyone knows everything and can answer every question. <sighs> These questions somehow are just dumbfounded. Basui is Korenanzo. You may know. Since some of you are taking the precepts, I will tell you what Basui said about the precepts. Keeping or violating the precepts is prior to the division of things and ideas, matter and mind, prior when essence and form were this one vehicle. Thus, when your mind is deluded, you are breaking all the precepts. And when you see into your own nature, you are at once keeping all the precepts perfectly. The power from seeing into your own nature will extinguish all delusion and bring life to Buddha nature. When you desire to mount the platform of the true precepts, you must tread upon the ground of the true self. This is the meaning of having attained Buddhahood. No need to receive the precepts. It goes without saying that one who outwardly keeps the precepts while inwardly seeking his true nature will attain the Buddha way as surely as water combines with water.
these questions, these <clears throat> essential questions, what is this? You think you know, oh, this is a collector, this is a tea bowl. What is this? Really, what is this? We're asking. Ooh, am I? What is we must all with great fervor investigate great indiligence in our own way to bring great diligence into this questioning question To get beyond, everybody knows everything. <laughs> That's just so unroshi, quoting Goethe in his Faust. To get beyond all that you have read in philosophy, in medicine, in jurisprudence, in theology, all that you have studied with ardent labor, and then what? Come to see, poor fool, no wiser than before. You have been leading people around by the nose, trying to get them to understand something that you have read and studied, and what have you discovered? We, in truth, can nothing know. To go into this nothing. Yesterday, we heard Takasui. <clears throat> in his saying, <clears throat> People have spoken of how this world is but a dream, how this one life is all that we have to live, but they fail to clearly discern in their own minds what this means, that this body is an impermanent, temporary affair. When you cannot clearly discern this, when you just give lip service to such sayings, 
then indeed this is where the path of knowledge leads us astray. Just as Goethe said, leading others astray and finally learning we in truth can nothing know. And without experiencing the reality of impermanence, we grab hold of every distraction. We, as the Tapasvi said, give our full attention to the small stuff of our everyday lives. We give our lives over, in other words, to knowing, to trying to cram whatever we can into our minds so that we can avoid this experience of this body will become cremated bones. And we want to figure everything out. We want to think that somehow we can grab hold of the truth that way through our intellectual apprehension. The more we can cram in there, the better we'll be defended against what? What is it that we're trying to defend against? Death. 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 So giving our lives over to knowing and acquiring and searching for something that will make it okay. And still, something is not at all what we are looking for. You know, in contemporary physics, Scientists get to what they think is the end point, and then what do they realize? Hmm. They find new particles. <laughs> that, there's still another end point, still more, still something that has not yet been tasted, still another truth, still not yet. And I have heard from Adam Frank, who spoke here at the 50th anniversary, last time Kobayashi Roshi was here. And he said, physics has hit a dead end. The only thing we can do now is open the window of contemplative practice. To do zazen. So this, what cannot be known, can only be experienced through 
our Om Zazen. The mystery is not something to be solved, to be answered once and for all, but rather to encourage ourselves to doubt, doubt, doubt everything that we have thought we would be able to grab hold of. And Soen Roshi said, this doubt is very good for Zen work. Doubt and doubt, inquire and inquire, march and march to the unthinkable point. Ask who is hearing this sound until you reach the bottom. <coughs> then, all of a sudden, when the bottom is broken, you will realize for yourself the master who hears this sound. <coughs> so we have to continue in this way, diligently asking, diligently searching, diligently doubting, not yet, not yet, still, continue, continue, march on, probing, probing. This is our work. This is koan work. We have to study. We have to do everything that we may come to realize is not leading to anything. In fact, is leading to nothing, if we are lucky. <laughs> what approach should we take? What works? Basically, if you really question everything, you will find that nothing works. Nothing really works. Wonderful. The energy of doing this is essential. We have to be thorough. We can't just take a, a kind of superficial pass at it. We have to hurl ourselves against that brick wall again and again. We can't just say, well, it's, it's somehow it will come to me. You know, I'll go to bed and I'll think Mu before I go to bed. And then in the morning, I will understand Mu. Maybe another night time. Maybe I need to sleep longer. <laughs> you know, we must have that questioning mind, that burning questioning mind. And we really must make sure that we don't take any shortcuts. It may seem as though when we are saying, oh, knowing is not the way. Knowing just brings you into this dumbfoundedness, which is absolutely essential. You must drop it all. It may seem as though there is no reason to study. But think about when you get on an airplane the next time. Think about the pilot. Hope very strongly that that pilot has gone through the entire training. <laughs> <laughs> and that 
He's not on automatic pilot the entire trip. We tend to do our practice on automatic pilot. We're not there for it. We're not here probing. We're just, okay, is the bell, yeah? (laughs) We must be complete in our efforts, diligent in our efforts, and knowledge must be embodied. If you have trained in the formal aspects of our practice, those of you who are officers are training and finding that there may be more, right? Perhaps you are not yet complete in your training, but still continuing with a genuine heart. This is what's important. When it becomes a part of your body, then it's no longer a matter of retaining something, or memorizing something, or having something written out that you consult so that you know when to strike this or get up or sit down. Just completely body wisdom is what we are training to incorporate into this practice. So what is the point of this? How about when newcomers arrive here? And several of you have given instruction. What is the most essential thing about instructing newcomers? Or if you are an officer at session, what is the most essential thing that you must convey? Hmm? Pay attention. of course not wrong. As you may recall, someone once asked the Buddha, is part of your teaching love and compassion? The Buddha said, no. The whole of my teaching is love. So if somebody comes here, I want to learn a little bit about what this place is all about. I want to understand something of Zen. The, The last thing you need to impart is form. The first thing is to use your loving heart to find out what this bodhisattva who has just appeared needs from you. If you are an officer, 
Some of you need to correct something. Something is out of place. Somebody has done something, whatever. To do it. Not because of regulations. Not because this is the way we practice here. It is not a matter of legislating to others. Sure, you may have gotten it right. Huh? But if you're an automaton conveying that rightness, it's all wrong. Huh? Has anybody ever felt somebody telling you how to do something? where it comes from that kind of forget about it. I'm out of here. So this is the most important thing. This is an essential thing for us because we're not doing this Zen practice for ourselves. Remember? We are not separate. And so what's going on in our own heart-mind? We must work on this so that we can be fully available, fully warm-hearted, fully encouraging. That's what we're here for. People come here because of their pain. Because this life of ours is so difficult. We are living in the midst of the Saha world. People are crying. There is only one way to bring this practice to those who come. And that is this Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva of compassion how can I help I see your tears let me help you get a good seat on the cushion. Let me help you feel grounded, stable. What is best for you? Maybe chair. Maybe full lotus. Have you experienced your breath today? Let us exhale together. And then gradually, gradually, people are feeling warmly encouraged. They can pay attention. Never say, pay attention! But rather, offer this loving heart. And naturally, right? Oh, it's first time session. Mm, somebody's like, why aren't you doing this? And you are like, oh, oh. I don't think I'm ever going to do session again. Is this why we're here? 
to frighten people away? I don't think so. I don't think so. So it's like cooking, you know? You can follow a recipe. But, Julio-san, you speak Italian, right? If you can follow that recipe exactly and you serve it up, it's just okay. But what about con amore? <laughs> we taste that, right? Con amore, with love. When Tenzo serves with love, we taste the difference. I'm so glad you can speak Italian. <laughs> so, this is not a matter of proper regulations. It's important to know them, but it's important to know them from the bottom of our being by doing them again and again and again until they become our own body. And until that time, it's not going to help if somebody tells you you're a piece of shit, because you already know that. That's why you came. <laughs> and it's the same with the precepts. You know what Vasavi is saying. It's the same. It's not just a list of commandments, right? how we wake up to who we truly are. Making the precepts are as natural as how to walk, how to sit, how to stand. Just that. So knowing everything, being Mr. Know-it-all, is not so helpful. You may remember there was a story about a professor who went to a Zen master and he wanted to know all about Zen. Tell me, you know, tell me, what, what does Zen say about such and such? And uh, the professor, and so the Zen master said, uh, let's have a cup of tea. And he began pouring into a cup the professor was holding. Pouring, 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 pouring. The professor said, ah, my cup is flowing over. Ah, the Zen master said, just like your mind is flowing over. How can I teach you anything? So this knowing, 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 collecting facts, building, piling everything up. How can you be open to learning anything truly? How can you be here in this very place, right here, right now, in this very body? How can you see what is happening right here when you are judging yourself, thinking, do I get this right, or did I have that right, or how much do I need to add to that? There's, of course, this feeling of deeply deeply wanting to know that brings us to this practice. But our understanding of the word knowing is perhaps a little askew, so that's really very clear in case 19 of Mumonkan, 
nonsense, everyday, ordinary mind. And many of you know this, but I will read it anyway. Joshua asked Nansen, what is the way? Nansen replied, ordinary mind is the way. Joshua asked, shall I try to seek after it? Nansen answered, if you try for it, you will become separated from it. Joshu persisted, how can I know the way unless I seek after it? Nonsense said. It's most precious teaching. For me, this is most precious teaching. I come back to it again and again and again. So let me read it to you. <clears throat> the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is confusion. When you have really reached the true way beyond doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as outer space. How can it be talked about on the level of right and wrong? Hearing those words, Joshu came to a sudden realization. Knowing is delusion. Acquiring and piling up fact after fact, rule after rule, regulation after regulation. Not knowing is confusion. You can't just say, oh well, I'll forget about doing anything because, oh well, not knowing. Because they say not knowing is better than, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> next time you go to the doctor, ask your doctor, not knowing or knowing? <laughs> if you are lucky, your doctor will say, how can it be talked about? on the level of right and wrong. Knowing, not knowing. We must doubt these dualistic ways of living our lives. We must enter into Does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Yes or no? must go into our own, our own doubt. If some of you, as I have, as Larry has, have gone to Utakaji, you have gone into Hakuin's great doubt zendo. 
fox says, Wait out, Sandal! Plunge into this great doubt! And then you will fully reach the way beyond doubt. You must go through doubt. Doubt your eternal existence in this crumbling body and go beyond what you think you know and truly you will find it as vast and boundless as outer space to do this kind of intensive work requires us to surrender, to surrender, first of all, to give up our preferences about the way things should be, to encounter this as it is without somehow trying to manipulate it so that it shifts into something we think it ought to be. To bring great doubt to everything we think we know brings great faith. This is Mu, to trust, to surrender to Mu is to find this faith in things as they are. Generating such gratitude and great determination. You got a glimpse? Good for you. Let it go. You don't know what it means? Even better. Don't know. Another glimpse comes. <sighs> Can you hold on to it? Don't even try. If you do, what happens? Just like that tea being poured, there's no room for the next, that present, now to be realized. Let it go, let it go. It's very hard for us to do this because what is our default mode? We've been trained so well. Not in the Zendo. Now I'm talking about our lives, our backgrounds. What are we trained to do? Trained to hang on. Trained to conceptualize. <coughs> and we're desperate, really. Desperate to know. We think if we know, then we'll feel better about everything. If only somebody could, after all, give us a formula in spite of what the Buddha said in the Diamond Sutra. There is no formula for this. Supreme 
enlightenment. But it's because we've been trained. We want it. We crave certitude. We crave something we can depend on. And Takasui said, even the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas can't help you. If you're craving something out there, if you think somehow you're going to be able to acquire something, then no. And so when we hear in our minds we are seeking something, seeking something holy outside ourselves. It's really like uh, Bodhidharma's encounter with Emperor Wu. You may remember the story. When Bodhidharma came after that long three-year passage by ship, and Emperor Wu was so proud of his accomplishments, his achievements, his attainments, all that he knew, all the studies, all the support he had given to Buddhism. What merit have I gained? What did Bodhidharma say? No merit whatsoever. And hearing this, the emperor thought, hmm. Does this guy know anything about Buddhism? <laughs> so he asked, What is the most holy truth of Buddhism? What did Bodhidharma answer? Vast emptiness, nothing whole. and boundless as outer space. Nothing to be known as or conceptualized as holy. Of course at this the emperor was like who is this guy? Who are you? What did Bodhidharma say? Hmm? I don't know. No, no. And he left. And later, the emperor wanted to know what happened. That is attendants said, do you know who that was? No, I don't know. Different, I don't know. <laughs> His attendants said, that was Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. And, Bodhidharma, and the Emperor Wu said, well, go get him back. <laughs> Even if all the people of China pursued him, he would not return. 
So truly, this, this is what we must keep in our hearts. Everybody we meet, they look like some down and out guy, you know, in the gutter. Changes our relationship. Right? Completely changes. Even you may think Trump. No. Could never happen. If we feel that way, then we who are engaged in this negativity. If we see, even in Trump, there is this bodhisattva waiting to be born. How can we encourage this in the world? Right? This is really an important matter. It's one thing to take issue with his policies. And I think many of us do. But if we vilify him, then I'm sorry, but much better to say, have a cup of tea. So you can tell from this that our practice is very difficult. It's not difficult because it's hard to understand what to do, which way to turn when Kenyan goes, and where to stand, and how to hold the bowls and not have them fly out of your hands. And all of these things are easy. We have to relax and just let the body learn them, little by little, slowly, slowly, gradually, gradually. But what's hard is to really bring this whole of Buddha's teachings to every encounter. as unlikely as it might seem to see through to the heart of what we call that other. Not at all separate. So as Sohan Roshi always said, let us march on bravely. Let us die on the cushion. Die to all those ways of keeping ourselves protected against the inevitable pile of cremated bones so that we may live. And I will end with I could 
when he went to Israel in 1963. And he wrote in his journal, a Bodhisattva assembly has just formed in Jerusalem. I am naming it the Dead Sea Sangha at Mount Olive. <laughs> and then he said, Today I have bathed on the Dead Sea. Now I may die. And his haiku, Shikai yori haide te haru no mi no shizuku. Crawling out of the Dead Sea, body glittering with drops of spring. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.